0: There's an image that's used in Buddhism to represent the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a figure that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out a thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world, and a thousand arms reaching out to help. Some years ago, I attended a retreat with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and there were about 400 adults and also 30 children there. The children were having their own retreat, separate from the adults. But each morning, they would come and do a show-and-tell for all of the adults before we began our retreat day. Each morning they stood up in front of us and in various ways they shared uh, with us what they had been doing and learning the previous day. One morning they came into the meditation tent and all 30 of them stood in a long line silently facing all four hundred adults. And then each of the children stretched out both their arms and hands, opening them very wide. The palm of each child's hand had an eye painted in it. And then one little boy walked up to the platform where Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's hands. And that was the whole of their presentation for us that morning. A very touching, inspiring, and a very beautiful teaching from the children. So, compassion, karuna. What is it experientially? About 39 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. Holding him that morning with uh, a very sweet tenderness between us, as he lay open-eyed, relaxed, and quite contented. And my eyes looking deeply into his face with a kind of wonderment and a curiosity. I suddenly felt my heart tremble and quiver, the vibration permeating my whole chest and then moving through my body and through my mind. A feeling of connection, an intimacy with him, and an intimacy in those moments with life as a force, so to say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a deep sense that this tiny being was going to experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations. And many painful bodily and mental experiences within himself. A kind of wave of the breadth of suffering in life literally kind of quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty. And some tears came. Not the aching tears of sadness that come with the feeling of attachment. That morning the tears were more like what I think of as the juice of compassion. That, yes, this is, this is how it is for all of us and for him too. That morning's experience has returned in various ways as a teaching for me since, and particularly as life in the Dharma has been unfolding. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering, ours or that of another being. I I think of compassion as the heartbeat of of the Buddha's teaching. It's one of the two wings with which we learn to fly free the wing of wisdom, of understanding, of understanding the empty, not-self nature of all things, and the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings that comes through a deep understanding, knowing of dukkha, of knowing its cause, and of knowing the way of its end. Our practice is grounded in mindfulness and investigation, connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. It's also grounded in what I think of as metta and karuna training. Compassion is a very tender, very open state. And at the same time, it's it's a place within us of great strength. Tenderness, openness, strength. The capacity to be with and stay with, stay present with whatever's happening within our body, our mind, and with what's going on around us. It's the capacity to not be overwhelmed with difficulties. Not be overwhelmed with suffering, our suffering or others. Not be overwhelmed with the difficulties that show up in our mind, in our body. We meet and accept what is, which is really the basis of metta. And then, in whatever ways, it might be appropriate, we're able to help without any kind of aversion. True compassion, or boundless compassion as it's often called, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, Ourself very much included in that, and not making others, or ourself in any way more important than each other in our mind. Compassion is neither strained nor is it reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear, transform anger, transform grief or greed any of these states that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own body to our own mental experiences compassion training is the cultivation of an immeasurable impartiality what Chögyam Trumpa called a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Metaphorically, it's like one moon shining in the sky with its image reflected in every body and every drop, every drop and body of, the, of water on this earth. The moon doesn't demand, if you open to me, I'll do you a favor and shine on you. The moon just simply shines. The point is not to want to benefit anybody or to make them happy. There's no audience involved. No me, no you, no them. It's really a matter of an open gift. Complete, compassionate generosity without the relative notions of giving and receiving. This is from Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there, and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, and for we can only be human together. Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other. And between self and the immediacy of our experiences of body, mind, and heart. It dissolves or counteracts the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, the withdrawal, in the face of others or our own pain, our own suffering. So that we're honestly and truly present with another and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, greed, jealousy, grief. Usually we think of mental states, emotional states, as being positive or negative. As our understanding deepens through practice, we begin to know that the most important and helpful and really true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between reaction and response. Reaction or reaction <laughs> is always based on the past, on past conditioned patterns that are rooted in some agenda, so to say, that are always associated with I, with me or mine. So consequently, they aren't connected to and don't really serve the immediacy, the reality of the present moment, the present moment's experience or the overall situation. Compassion is a response, not a reaction. There's a story about the Zen master Ryokan whose brother invited him to visit his house to speak to his delinquent son. And Ryokan went. But he didn't say any words of admonishment to the boy. He stayed overnight and prepared to leave early the next morning. And as his wayward nephew was helping Ryokan lace his straw sandals, he felt a drop of warm water touch his hand. And glancing up, he saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with eyes full of tears. Ryokan returned home and the nephew changed, actually quite soon changed for the better. Compassion training. Karuna practice is difficult. It means that we take to heart the Buddha's words. I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Of course, the Buddha wasn't about to go on and tell us the best way to suffer, nor was he recommending it. He was, though, pointing out that suffering, unsatisfactoriness, is intrinsic to our human condition, or at least intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. What he was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence and that looking deeply, directly, and honestly at the reality of suffering in our lives is what actually leads us to take the necessary, necessary steps to free ourselves from it. During the monsoon season where I live up in the mountains in New Mexico, we often have rainbows appearing, actually double rainbows often. A rainbow appears because of very specific conditions coming together within specific moments. The right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the light being appropriate, right, and then of course one has to be standing in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it changes very, very quickly, in just moments. Everything in life, including what we think of as our self, all of our experiences of body and mind are really like a rainbow. Merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, totally contingent, and empty in and of themselves. And it's quite obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind. the suffering of grasping on, trying to hold tight to some appearing thing and solidifying it and identifying it as mine, as me, as this is who I am, be it material objects, an idea, an opinion, a belief, a memory, an emotional state, a bodily experience. Thinking of any of these things as in any way permanent, unchanging, and identifying any of, the, any of these things as me, as mine, as I, will inevitably bring anguish, confusion, will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. As we practice, we find the objects of attention don't really change much. It's our relationship, it's our relationship to them that changes. an amazing and actually fortunate thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not absolute. As our practice takes deeper root and begins to mature, we begin to see and know that liberation from suffering isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. We have this saying in English that ignorance is bliss. In the clarity of the Buddhist teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. With ignorance providing the fertile ground for delusion to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are also only impermanent, conditioned states of suffering, not our true nature each just one of the hues of the rainbow. This is, a, uh, this is a piece from Stephen Mitchell, The Myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero Condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. As we begin to see clearly and step aside, we're less and less habitually, blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of a suffering relationship to life. And the energies of unconditional kindness and compassion begin to take root and grow. Our heart begins to open. And we're truly then beginning to awaken. So where does our capacity for compassion and our capacity to cultivate compassion come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many, many times. Every time we experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain, Every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with, when we've been sick or hurting physically, or when we've been in some emotional pain, the seeds of compassion were sown. In the moments of the purity of a compassionate connection, Relationship is transformed by cutting through the me, you, subject, object dualism. Karuna and metta are unifying energies. The giver and the receiver are joined, we could say, not separate, in a moment of pure presence. These moments hold and carry the particular energy of the heart, the particular energy, for instance, of metta or compassion, and plant the seed of this energy in the receiver. And for most of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And, of course, we, in turn, plant many seeds. Every time we connect unconditionally with another, every time we freely offer warmth or love, a seed of metta is planted, while at the same time we're cultivating and fertilizing the seeds of metta that are within our own heart and mind. Every time we remain present, with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally. A seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna with our heart is watered and fertilized and grows. Looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting the seed of the manifestation of clear and true presence in both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission and we give the transmission to others and again to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, the spiraling transmission of metta and karuna. For me and for many other people an amazing and inspiring contemporary embodiment of compassion has been Mother Teresa. In a video about her life and her work, there's a short scene where she stops by the bed of a man that had just been brought in from the street, who's extremely emaciated and very, very sick. And she gets down very close to him and looks directly into his eyes and just simply puts her hand on his chest over his heart. And he looks directly back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of enormous suffering in his face changes. It changes to light and love. A few moments of a very powerful and gentle transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness, to face whatever it is. As I mentioned earlier, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't be near this, I can't stand this, I can't bear this. And it's so important when this comes up in the mind, in the heart, because it does. It's so important to bring a mindful attention that's based in the non-judgmental connection of the heart of metta, meeting the reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising with this flavor of mindfulness. The attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is anger. This is what's appearing in this moment. And this is how it is. If a very dear, close friend comes to us with their troubles, we usually give them our attention. We give them our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling, to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. We need to learn to befriend ourselves and to understand our own suffering to come close and see how it is, just how it really is. It may be a strong and intense energy, but it's not at all static, not at all solid. Can we come so close to see how it really is? There's fear, there's anger, there's a thought, a memory, there's discomfort in the body, any of these appearances, these hues of the rainbow, can we come so close with the heart of metta and compassion and see how it is? See the colors themselves. See through the colors, even the strongest of colors. as we learn to befriend ourselves and understand our own suffering, our connection with all beings quite naturally grows and develops. And we come to really know that the pain in our heart or in our back, in its essence, isn't different than the pain in the heart or the back of any being, anywhere, on this earth. This is from Shantideva, an 8th century Buddhist monk. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy, and not desiring pain. What's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet it's not so easy, this relating to others and to ourselves with the clear, pure, compassionate heart. We have many, many old, seeming, and some seemingly new personal agendas. We have many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think for many of us there's confusion in relation to the difference between pity and and compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of true open-hearted presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal from, if we really look carefully. when we pity, there's a subtle or maybe not so subtle wanting things to be different and maybe some feeling that I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. So pity tinged with a kind of arrogance. But what it really is is a cover-up for our fear cover up for our inability at that particular moment of being with the suffering that we're encountering. And I think probably each of us knows that when we feel pity for ourself or in ourself for ourself, in those moments we're not experiencing a caring, a kindness, a compassion for ourselves, But it's really rather a Sticky, stuck, sinking, feeling sorry for ourself place. That kind of feeling of, poor me, what a mess I am. In this place, there's not much, if any, actually, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves. So, again within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental, mindful attention, we can practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind. Letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, myself, as a pitiable person. I am pitiful. Rather, the possibility of, here's pity. And of course, when uh, this one shows up, it's probably a very old friend, or maybe a very old enemy. So the possibility of, here's pity. This is what's arising. How is it? it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am but it's come up. And as Ajahn Sumedho says, oh, here's my personality. Can we come close without judgment, without identification and take a look? I think one of the most important things to remember in our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, To recognize our limitations. And to truly honor and respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way. To not pretend to ourselves or to others. Not pretend by imitating or acting out of some idealized image we have of a compassionate, loving person. And also to not sit in our practice with an expectation, wanting to have what we think is the perfect or the right experience of metta, or the perfect or right experience of compassion. It's really important to know and to respect our limits along the way and to really come from a genuine place of heart. I had this shown to me quite clearly about 13 or 14 years ago when my mother fell on some cement steps and she cut her leg very badly. And Because of particular circumstances, she didn't take proper care of the wound, and it became very badly infected. The doctor told us that if the wound wasn't cleaned out daily for a few weeks that she would have to be hospitalized. And we didn't want that to happen, which meant that either my brother or my sister-in-law or myself would have to be the nurse. So there was a moment of quite an awkward silence with no one volunteering to do what needed to be done. So really by default, not out of any great compassion in those moments I volunteered, which actually should have been my first clue. So to make a long story short, um, for the first few days of the task, I found myself often quite angry, feeling anger towards my mother. First for falling, and then for not taking care of herself. And look what I have to do now. Whenever she would express uh, experiencing some pain, those kinds of feelings and thoughts would come up or when the smell of the wound would touch my nostrils. And I had moments of really pulling away and tightening when she showed discomfort. And there were even some thoughts of, well, she's the mother, I'm the child, she's supposed to be taking care of me. Look what I'm having to do. And yet, all the while, through this process that was really quite uncomfortable for her, she very often expressed gratitude. She expressed appreciation for what I was doing. So I soon found myself feeling quite grateful for the practice during those difficult, very difficult days. Seeing the aversion coming up and going away amidst actually moments of genuine metta and very deep, heartfelt compassion, along with my mother's very true and deep appreciation for being cared for, for not having to go to the hospital. A bond was made during those days. Habituated roles were cut through. The seeds of compassion that had been planted many, many times were being cultivated. And this is from another venue. In 1996, I uh, participated in the first uh, Bearing Witness retreat that Tetsugen Roshi, Bernie Glassman Roshi, organized at Auschwitz. I was teaching in Poland uh, during that time and took some days and went to this retreat. There were 140 people from all over the world there, and it um, it was on American Thanksgiving, a few days which included American Thanksgiving. Each evening during that retreat, Uh, someone would read a a piece, a small part of uh, a a diary uh, that was written by a woman named Eddie And So I'd like to just read you uh, a small piece of her diary. First, a little bit of a background about her. Eddie was 27 years old. She was a Dutch-Jewish woman, and she wasn't in good health. Uh, She lived in the Westerbrook concentration camp And then, only briefly, she lived in Auschwitz, where she died. And during these years of tremendous suffering throughout Europe, Eddie, um, actually for Eddie, were a time of enormous personal growth. And paradoxically, a time of a kind of personal liberation for her. In the midst of this tremendous... A difficult scenario that was being played out all over Europe. We could say Eddie wrote the counter scenario. Her diaries are really quite an amazing account of possibility as, our possibility as human beings in the midst of extreme, immense difficulty. So this is a little piece from her diary. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant litter, inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast, empty plain, with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view, so that something of God can enter you and something of love, too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. At another point, Eddie wrote, mysticism must rest on crystal-clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. And this is the last entry from her diary. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world, to accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of all the days that are to come. And she closes her diary. When I suffer for the vulnerable, it's not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer. We should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds, is the last line of her diary. Those that survived the camp have said that Eddie was a luminous, compassionate being right to the very end. And we might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might seem like the most unlikely circumstances, in a most unexpected moment. I'd like to share a piece from my own diary that comes from this same Bearing Witness retreat. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take the train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman has organized the first Bearing Witness retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh, gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the prisoners, the shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too hard to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp razor edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in, than the immense sadness, as it's a far less familiar feeling and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation, until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes and om mani padme hum, which is a mantra of compassion in Tibetan Buddhism, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. The deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of the disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion. Not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that, just as each one of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of care and compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, and the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others as happened to such an extreme in auschwitz i'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with the teachings of the buddha these teachings and practices which are the balm for all wounds Not long ago, this story was uh, put into the Taos Mountain Sangha newsletter, which gets sent out to a number of people, including some of the people that uh, have sat retreats with me in Israel. And I'd like to share one woman's response uh, to that piece from my diary. She is an Israeli woman. I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for the Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now that we are facing such difficulties. I was deeply touched reading in your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. I realize how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect with what you experienced. I felt it is very important for me to be able to make such transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both his hands, a flag in the book of Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. He had no humanity left in him. Life, his, others, any life, has no meaning for him. I began to cry. And then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. And this next uh, short piece is from a woman named Vimala Thakar, who I don't know if she's still alive, an Indian spiritual master who was a longtime student of Krishnamurti's. She's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. This is a short quote of hers. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer. That what is me is quite separate from, what, from the not me. That divisions among people and nations are necessary. And yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflict begins with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering what does the po- what does the powerful moment of truth do to us do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms or are we awakened at the core of our being And again, back to the necessity of simply being right where we are. Respecting, honoring ourself right where we are. We may not yet feel wholeness. We may not feel full in the healthy sense, abundant, full of everything that we need. And this needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be respected. Otherwise, caring and giving is often done out of fear. Maybe fear of being disapproved of, or fear of loss, or avoiding, avoiding conflict. it's also important to be aware if we're acting, if we're giving with some subtle or maybe not so subtle sense of wanting to get something in return. Or if we're trying to create an image of ourself in our own eyes or in the eyes of others as a compassionate person. When our heart isn't yet healed healed from the feelings of not-enoughness. There may be misunderstanding in relation to the truth of compassionate action. With this misunderstanding, our actions can create and strengthen an unhealthy attachment, an unhealthy attachment of what is called codependency both within ourself and in relationship to others and within others. It's as though we give ourself away or we lose ourself in an unhealthy way, in seeming support, which is actually unskillful support of others. We're not seeing the situation clearly. We're not seeing what's really needed and we ourselves pretty much always end up feeling less whole, feeling more depleted. In relation to this, on a larger scale, Thomas Merton spoke about what Chogyang Trungpa called, much later actually, called idiot compassion. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics, and to endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social situation to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Respect for ourselves and others just right where each of us is at any given moment and honoring the fact that a true and deep compassion grows and matures gradually. This itself is the continuing cultivation of metta and karuna. It's our inalienable right to feel whole, to feel connected, to feel ontologically okay being here, alive on the planet, meaning nothing else is really necessary to simply feel okay in being here. Just the fact that we are here, alive on the planet, is just enough. Like a tree or a spider or a bird or a flower or grass or the wind. This natural inclination to simply feel okay, just that okay, to know that utterly selfless okayness that's intimately interconnected but not attached to anything. It's a perfectly natural inclination and maybe one way of saying why so many of us humans have been drawn to the Buddha's teaching and drawn to practice. And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free, the wing of wisdom, the coolness and ease of what the Buddha sometimes called six-limbed equanimity, the liberating equanimity of pure awareness in relationship to all the phenomena that arises and passes through the six-sense doors, this liberating wisdom that comes about via our experiential insight into the emptiness, the not-self nature of all things. The other wing being unconditional compassion. The heartfelt connection to beings. And our way of being in this world that ensues from this. This wing arising out of a clear, deep understanding, knowing of dukkha, its root, its root cause and the way of its end. Tying into Carol's talk from last Friday, in reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers, etc., all the way back to the Buddha, this heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dharma family. If it wasn't for the wing of great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it so interesting and actually so helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself. His speaking about his own humanness, even in and through his process of awakening. In one of his discourses, where we find him speaking to a small group of bhikkhus about his search for enlightenment, he also shares what his thoughts were soon soon after his awakening. And this is the Buddha. This Dhamma I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness. Rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in greed, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And the Buddha goes on to say, considering thus my mind inclined towards inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. And then he tells his monks that very soon after these thoughts, a certain Brahma came to him and pleaded with him, this is the Brahma, The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata accomplished and fully enlightened inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And the Buddha goes on with his monks. Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes, and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, Open for them are the doors to the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahma, I did not speak the Dhamma, subtle and sublime. So this wing of compassion, unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and itself, obviously, also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna, so honestly and clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening, it's the wing that connects with the absolute understanding of not self emptiness. It's the wing of our relative nature of humanness. One way to express this is that to know emptiness means that we know directly that life is only in the immediate presence of what we experience. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience, because it's all that we can ever know. I'd like to close with um, sharing a piece uh, with you from a Dharma student from Taos who um, died a few years ago of AIDS-related complications. And he wrote this uh, that was to be part of a book that never got finished. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat, trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg goes numb. On the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. The retreat schedule looks daunting, from 5.45 a.m., till 10 p.m. Nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take our vows, take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day, and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddhist compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Is metta and karuna better than vipassana? Is pra- In practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling... Where do they come from? Where do they go? We are creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us, cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how Vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And Vipassana is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. On the last full day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center, my heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life, the suffering and the beauty, all of it, all of it being held, but not being held onto. Thank you. Let's just sit together for a moment.